Welcome back to ILP Parsha Podcast, your weekly Torah portion podcast. Each week we'll do a light dive into this week's Parsha, we'll zoom in on a passage that catches our eye, and then we'll connect back to Judaism and our own lives. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Seleka, and as always, I'm joined by... Aaron Rotenberg. Hey, Paul. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing this week? Oh, I'm good. Just getting ready for Passover, which is almost upon us, probably by the time this episode is out. That's true. It'll either be during Passover or post-Passover, but we're revealing our production schedule. Are you doing a lot of Passover cleaning right now? Is that part of your personal tradition? Yeah, I'm doing some Passover cleaning. <laughs> I'm laughing to myself. We we had a busy week last week and we missed our garbage day and our compost bin is full. That's the worst, because in the city we live in, garbage comes every two weeks. So if you That's miss right. a week, you're really up a creek. <laughs> yeah, so I'm feeling up the creek, and there's so many things to throw out. So um, one of the things I did today was empty out our compost tumbler that we have. Mm-hmm. We tried to make more room for organic things to throw out. So it felt like it was an interesting like combination of cleaning out the home, like getting the garden ready. It felt like springy and Pesach appropriate. Spring, because this is Hag Ha'aviv, correct? Hag Ha-Aviv, this is the right. the festival of springtime, so to speak. And I've heard, don't quote me on this, that mm-hmm. perhaps Passover is a merger of a spring festival and some sort of like emptying the... You're the biblical critic here of some sort of like also clearing out the stores how festival that got combined. So I definitely like the springiness yeah. to Passover. And uh, it's funny, too, that, you know, having a lot of Ashkenazi observant friends in my life, I remember people often saying that for Ashkenazi Jews, there's not a lot they could eat. But today I was eating a dish that I feel like must be observant Ashkenazi safe. It's called cheese bread or pound of keju. It's just tapioca flour and and powdered Parmesan cheese. So I'm like, surely, you know. This must be kosher for Passover, tapioca flour. Like it's there's what is tapioca? Tapioca flour. It's uh what is it made out of? Cassava. Cassava. Oh yeah. That's just like a root vegetable, right? Yeah. So be, with all the great cassava products out there, you know, yeah. oh. Brazilian Jews must be living it <laughs> big. Um, so I was like, oh, I made this by chance, but this also seems kosher for Passover. So, you know, that was a nice little Could be a new revelation. recipe coming our way. Absolutely. Uh, what's going on? Is anything up aside from eating cassava cheese bread? Yeah. Uh, what else? Is In our world? Thing? Well, you know, getting ready for Passover in maybe a lighter way than you, just celebrating Passover. Although I know I mentioned in our last podcast, we we're going to start early and end over the Passover stuff, like the not eating of the chametz. Uh-huh. But because of a change in schedule, we actually will be doing it on the correct days. Okay. So we've like, been uh, updated here. Now our listeners know. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a meal kit and there was noodles in it. And we're like, we'll just eat the noodles before Passover. And we'll actually spend the eight days on Passover to Passover instead of on the Sunday to Sunday arbitrarily. There so Hashem has intervened to make sure oh, that. To make it all work out. Yeah. He gets it, you know. So Amazing. And speaking of Hashem. Speaking of Hashem, let's jump into the Parsha. This week's Parsha what is we called Shmini. Shmini. Which means? Which means the eighth. Eighth. Eighth of what? 
Eighth Should of we what? Say? What is it? The eighth of I. Well, tell me, yes. <laughs> um, or yeah, tell me, and then we'll go into our one minute summaries. Yeah. So last time, instead of a one minute summary, I proposed this idea of eight things I learned about Shmini. Oh. So maybe I'll do that, and you can do a one minute summary if you will, if you like. Yeah, I'll do a one minute summary and you do your eight things because then since we're doing a one minute summary, why don't I go first to just frame it Mm -hmm. and then we'll be able to jump into your great, your eight items. So one minute summary, I'll time myself starting in three, two, one. So in this week's Torah portion, um, Aaron and his sons who are Konim are around. There is a fire happening. And then the divine presence of God is around in the sanctuary. Aaron has two sons. Um, I forget their names. And then there's a strange fire. And I believe they get killed. Uh, yes. Okay. Aaron's nodding. <laughs> then we talk about the laws of Kashrut. This is the part I found really interesting. Uh, about we can have animals only if they have a certain type of hooves. And then there is some... Information about the laws of purity. And that is my 40-second summary. Uh, thank you Great. so much. <laughs> so I need to make that sound. They were discussing on unorthodox last oh. month. So I was like, oh. I don't know where it comes from. They said it comes from yeshivish people. Yeah. It does come from yeshivish people. But where do they get it from? It's to, it's this, it sounds like people clapping. Like, oh. Oh. Yeah, that's what it's, oh. you know, you didn't realize that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I guess I just picked it up. And, oh. You thought they're just like blowing air, like, Psh. it's kind of like when people yeah. go ah, <laughs> to remind them of like the sound of the audience cheering. So we do, you know, make our own like sound effects. Full of people clapping. Oh, great to learn something new. So let's hear your eight things, though. Old things that I've learned are, I really, I feel like that was a great Parsha summary that you did, Paul. And there, there is more to say in this Parsha. I was like, well, this book of Leviticus, it's all just like lists of laws and how it's boring to do a summary. But mm-hmm. there actually is narrative features that you touched on with the death of Aaron's sons, which is like a rare, it's one of two moments in Leviticus where there are like some narrative interjection. What's the other one? Uh, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> but there's going to be a blasphemer, somebody who takes the divine name uh, okay. in vain, and then they have to figure out what to do with him. Okay, okay. So but, we'll, uh, we'll keep we'll an get, eye out we'll for get that. that. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. Uh, and then it's like, those are the only two things that interrupt this, like, uh, sacrifice is this, and list of laws this. But then also we have the list of laws of pure and impure, or uh, if that's an okay translation, uh, of permissible animals to eat. And that also feels like, even though it's like a list, it's very interesting and relevant to eating habits, which people always, including myself, find interesting. So there's lots to get into, but I raised this idea, so I'm going to do it. Hey, Eight let's things hear. that I've learned from Shmini. Number four will take your breath away. It's kind of make it click, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's the most click, baby. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron sacrifices a calf to grant atonement for the golden calf. This was an interesting mm. thing that I know. I don't know if I should need to explain each one. Escape calf. Escape calf. <laughs> Instead of the. Uh-huh. I think he also. Does he also do a goat? 
so uh, whatever. It's okay to let myself get distracted because we also left our listeners hanging. We're like, what's the eighth? Eighth of what? Yeah, eighth of what? So it's this action is taking place after the eighth on or on the eighth day after the consecration of the tabernacle, which we read about last time, that everything is ready. And then, oh, the presence of God descends in the tabernacle. And then there's this like kind of ongoing getting things ready. Like Moses is teaching everybody how to do all this stuff. And then kind of this culmination of like opening week of the tabernacle happens on the eighth day. And there's some like, it doesn't explain why it's special, but it is something that comes up in our tradition. You yeah. mentioned before, Henry, we have the other time that Shmini comes up or what holiday? Shmini Atzeret. Shmini Atzeret, which is the eighth day kind of after Sukkot. Oh, is that what it is? It's like the eighth day of assembling and gathering together. But there's something that like seven is completion and then eighth is like a cherry on top. Very special. So there's some sense of something like that going on here. Yeah, like a cap, I guess, right? Like, you know, so. So to cap off this, the opening of the Mishkan celebration, Aaron is instructed to like do this like special sacrifice with all of these different animals and do it in a special way. And one of them is a calf, which isn't usually like mentioned, but Rashi says that it's to help him get over this golden calf that he shouldn't have brought. It's a callback. Like what we say in improv. Yeah. It's It's a a callback to the golden calf. It's a very subtle callback. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Sometimes the flesh and skin are burned outside of the camp. I put that as something that I learned because I think I imagine like, oh, the sacrifices are happening on the altar. But on chapter nine, verse 11, like Aaron is told to burn, right? The flesh is like the meat and the skin, Mm -hmm. right? The part that we have in the barbecue. It isn't happening in the altar. It's happening outside, not just of the uh, tabernacle itself but outside of the camp completely. So there's also, there's some stuff that's happening inside, some stuff that's happening outside. You're right. I never thought of that. I do imagine like people just gutting things on an altar, like movie style. So. Yeah. And I'm grateful for our podcast and helping me read more slowly and notice what's going on. Cause I think usually when I read Leviticus, like my eyes kind of just glaze yeah. over and I'm like, Bleh. it's funny <laughs> like, to say that more slowly, something. but also more quickly. <laughs> Oh yeah, maybe slowly. Just one minute. Yeah, fast and slow. All right, <laughs> yeah. we have we do both scales. Uh, number three. Aaron blesses the people twice. Mm. Right? There's Aaron's like told, instructed to do this these special sacrifices, and then Aaron like raises his hands and blesses the people, which is still a tradition that we have amongst descendants of Aaron, our priests, which we've spoken about on previous episodes of blessing and then Moses and Aaron go away and then they bless the people again. And it's just nice to see this, uh, as a priest, as somebody who identifies or has the tradition of being a priest, like the thing that I feel most connected to is this idea of blessing. You um, like doing the, the priestly, Cohen, blessing. priestly blessing on the holidays. Yeah. It feels like a special, it feels like a special thing that I have found in the past easier to relate to than sacrifices but I'm also getting more into sacrifices, which maybe not that I plan on doing sacrifices. No, but I am saying as a side note, like we definitely 
need to. I know Tubish Fight, everyone has fruit. I think on the New Year's for cattle, we have to have. Oh, wait, you're still vegetarian. I'm vegetarian. It's a charcuterie, but you know. <laughs> you can on the first of Elul. Yeah, on the first of Elul, I definitely want to have some charcuterie. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, talk to, we'll talk about it when we get there. Uh, number four, to take your breath away, Kavod Adonai, the divine presence, is seen by all of the people, right? It feels like we have these, uh, this sense of like, oh, God only reveals God's self to the people at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Like, otherwise, like, God isn't really around. But, right, this moment is like meant to be so impactful. And the way that it's highlighted is after this happens, the presence of God, like, comes out to the people and like oh my gosh there's god can you imagine like, <laughs> oh there's god you know i seem to recall somewhere he's god's dwelling you know with the people mm, right we did have that or there's that famous line the asuli mikdash mm. god is and right what exactly does that mean that make me a sanctuary that i will dwell um, amongst you mm-hmm. or as the Hasidic thing goes like I will dwell within you as an in, inside of each individual yeah I think you're right you can but that feels like I don't know maybe that feels more experience maybe this is all experiential it's like seeing the divine presence Sometimes I do like to read things literally. I'm like, God was there with his hands and face, you know, as we've heard in the other passages. I'm like, wouldn't that be kind of something? Yeah. I think that that's right. I think the Torah is that we have other traditions that encourage us to lean away from that sort of uh, anthropomorphism. Mm -hmm. But it does feel like the Torah is encouraging it. I I do get torn sometimes. You know, people are always like, you know, people, what's it called? Straw manning. They're like, why believe in religion? Like, God's not some man on a cloud. I'm like, yo, maybe he is. Maybe he is a man on a cloud. <laughs> like, maybe it's extremely anthropomorphic. Like, let's, let's, I don't really think that, but I'm like, it'd, it'd be interesting yeah. to lean into. I think, I think God is also a man on a cloud. Mm-hmm. But even, even when you, I feel it, when you refer to God in the masculine, part of me is like, oh, God's not. God's not a man. God's not a woman. Because I, I don't know. Somebody put planted this idea in my head. Like, a, but actually, I think we need to open up our language about God and to mm-hmm. say, yeah, God is a man. That's great. We should use that language. And also, God is a woman. I think it's really important to also have that language. And I feel like has been feminine God language has been important and a meaningful access point for me mm-hmm. more recently. More recently, that's true. Not, not in the past, but now. Yeah, I used right. to. Right, I think I used to be very. Uh, I didn't mean to out you as. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but I do like it. And also to talk about God without gender, right? Like to talk about. We talk about nature without gender. We also talk about nature with gender. But anyway, I digress. One way to talk about God that we see in Shmini that I learned about is. As a force that can like direct fire in this like really cool supernatural way, both for good and bad. But then we have that moment that you referenced of God sends out this fire to kill mm. uh, Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's two sons. But in the moment when God's presence is revealed just beforehand, like 
God's fire comes out and consumes the sacrifice. Like it isn't lit by anybody. It's like, and it's not his first fire, right? I seem to recall a pillar of fire either. Oh, yeah. 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 In, in the past or in the future, I forget, but that's what I know so many Nadavs. I'm like, they're all named after this guy. This guy, <laughs> this guy who did. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe, uh, this thing I learned is connected to a question that I have about what you're saying that the disheveling or maybe burying your hair is a sign of mourning, which I didn't, you know, seems like a disheveling thing. your hair. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense that at least in contemporary Jewish practice, we don't, you know, wear makeup and do ourselves up when we cover the mirrors. So like mm-hmm. you could see a connection there. Certainly. I think there's a lot of, at least in rabbinic Judaism, a lot of connections to Jewish practice in this passage. Like it's it comes here, quite a meaty yeah. passage. Definitely a meaty pa- passage. But this is coming from uh, the Aaron's family and Aaron and his sons are, are told, don't dishevel your hair. Don't like tear your clothing. Mm-hmm. Like don't mourn what just has happened. That your brothers and your son just was consumed by this divine fire that came out of nowhere. I mean, it's, it's a hard passage to kind of know what's going on. Like, is that because they didn't do something wrong or they did do something wrong? Like, I think it's possible and has, has, has been over the years read in different ways. That's a good, interesting question. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, def- I don't want to stop you in your list. Though. What number were we at? Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a good replace. This, this is a great list. No, I'm actually really enjoying it. For the it. one minute summary, because it's... <laughs> taking me a lot longer uh it doesn't number, have to be short it's okay yeah it's okay We're, it's, it gives us something to talk about number seven we only know of a list of birds not to eat i counted 20 of them although some are kind of categories but this is very different than how we relate to kosher birds these days mm-hmm. right we have this way of relating that we only eat birds that we know are kosher right so it's kind of like we have a list of kosher birds Right, like what birds are kosher? We know a chicken, chicken and turkey, and, right? And so turkey was a uh, actually a conscientious, uh, not, uh, not what's conscious. The was Deliberate. there was something that people were unsure about because the way that we've related to it is we only eat birds if we have a tradition of our ancestors eating those birds. So you know, our ancestors were eating chickens in the old country for many years. And they were eating goose and they were eating quail. They talks about eating quails in the Torah. So we have these traditions. So we eat them. But then when we got to the new world, there's this new bird. It's a turkey. We don't mm-hmm. have a tradition to eat it. So some people are like, oh, it's not a new bird. It's just a kind of chicken. Or it's like, right, that's in Hebrew, it's called a tarnagol hodu. It's like an Indian chicken. They're like, oh, it's, this is a chicken. But then some people are like, no, this is not. It's a different bird, which turns out it is true. It is a different bird. Uh, Somehow got through the cracks. It's funny. In Portuguese, uh, Turkey is called Peru. Because <laughs> I guess that's where they Peru. first ran into oh, them. Okay. <laughs> like Peru is next to, obviously, Brazil. So maybe that's that connection. That's where they came from. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, too, with the birds thing. I remember James asking me, like, is this animal kosher? Is that animal kosher? And I kind of said what you said in the rabbinic tradition. I'm like, listen, just assume everything's not kosher until I tell you otherwise, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which is what, that's, that is what we do. But the Torah is not encouraging the torah saying it's actually the opposite mm-hmm. it's just only don't eat these birds and they're mainly birds of prey no offspring no and hawks offspring. no eagles a cormorant is at least one of the tra- translations we also the, the problem is 
we don't know what the exact translation is. that's where this comes from is we don't know what the translation of these birds are so we're like uh we don't actually know so let's just be play it extra safe but yeah. that uh what's it called that fence around the torah right yeah from pure yeah, and last one, locusts are kosher. Locusts, yes. This does come up a lot in my household, believe it or not. So let's uh-huh. hear what you thought about locust. Uh, I was just not- noting it because we're around Pesach time. And it's like a plague. Oh, a plague. Kosher plague. I thought you meant because like, oh, because I'm hungry for locusts during <laughs> Pesach. Whenever I get the Pesach, <laughs> yeah. like, get that locust craving. It would be great for a Seder, though. Like that feels like so relevant. But it's, it's you know, also funny because like, oh, frogs, ew, wild animals, ew. But locusts is kosher, kosher buffet. It's great. <laughs> Look at all this food. I don't know. Like um, James is always trying to sell me on bugs he's like in the future everyone will eat bugs i'm like i'm so sure that's true because i know people already eat bugs but i'm like just for me because i grew up not eating bugs it's just not gonna happen for me i believe what isn't there some tradition that yemenites jews are able to eat locusts because they still have that tradition but all other jews don't haven't continued the tradition of eating locusts i thought there was some sort of fun fact like that oh is it only yemenites i don't know that could be because i've never known anyone to i've never known any observant friends to be like oh yeah had a great locust salad. It doesn't seem to come up for people. Maybe because there's no locusts around. Yeah, it's Maybe like a grasshopper. Are they grasshoppers? I think they're kind of grasshopper-like thing. I guess if you're in a pinch, yeah, you can always have a locust, you know, whatever that is. <laughs> whatever whatever that is. Whatever that means. Some sort of angry yeah. grasshopper, yeah. Yeah, but it feels like even the Torah, like the way that it's listed, it's first like don't eat any creepy crawly things. Basically saying don't eat insects. Uh, but except for these ones. So it does kind of feel like it's playing on this assumption that people are not going to eat insects to start with. But if you need to, hear some. But they get to it. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really good list. I feel like we did. There's a lot to kind of explore in this parsha. You know, a few mm-hmm. things you talked about, I guess, was about animals and kosher. But there's also about purity. Mm-hmm. Is there kind of one direction that's pulling you more than the other or... I don't know. So um, let's just let's go into then maybe let's do let's do a random passage right now. I've just pulled one up from okay. Chabad.org and I'll read the English if you want to read the Hebrew. Okay. Any animal that has cloven hoof that is completely split into double hooves and which brings up its cud that one you may eat. Kol mm. Mafreset parsa, vishosa at chesa, prasot, maalat gera, babehema, ota, tochelu. So, what are we talking about here? I guess we're describing animals, you know, non fowl, right? That are kosher to eat, like calves, yeah. I assume. Yeah, that's right. Four legged animals that you can eat need to have these signs. Hard split hooves and chew their cud. Mm-hmm. It's just such an interesting one, I guess, right? Because I I don't really know any animal besides cows that chew their cud, right? I guess goat, maybe. Well, it said if it continues, it goes on. It says, well, you might think if they have one of the signs, and it gives examples like, well, camels, they chew their cud, but they don't have split hooves. 
don't do it. And it's also like rabbits and hares, they chew their gut, nose but hooves, don't do them. This is like Torah as biology <laughs> textbook, because I didn't know that rabbits chew their own cud. I guess so. I trust. Yeah, actually, we're movie. trusting. We're trusting this book, but you know, like during the pandemic, there's a real rabbit overpopulation where I was living at the time, so I never noticed them chewing their own cud. You know, so I have to look more closely. This was maybe also, they do when you're not looking. Maybe they're yeah, they're doing it very quickly. Uh, and then it also says, right, a pig has split hooves or hard hooves its hooves are good but it doesn't chew its gut so it's no good and usually like often we think of the pig as like the symbolic unkosher uh, animal but here i'm saying it as it's like close it's the but, most yeah unkosher animal to pick for some reason right but at least here in shmini's presentation it's like it's almost there but not there's other things that are probably could be more unkosher uh but yeah culturally has become a thing of that's the thing to avoid, probably because a lot of people are eating it in proximity to Jews. Yeah, it's probably become a way of differentiation that, you know, mm-hmm. pig is salty and tasty, you know, one can assume. And but it's if everyone else is eating like, no, we're not like them. We don't, you know, don't quote me on this as well. But I remember like um, someone telling me that Sephardic Jews like, you know, mm-hmm. like to party and like to drink. And I was wondering if that's because the people around them didn't drink so much. And Ashkenazi Jews tend to not drink so much. I remember because maybe because everyone in Eastern Europe was drinking a lot. You know, this is like a very broad stroke summary of those regions. But I'm like, so, you know, maybe that kind of need to regularly differentiate yourself. Like, everyone's eating pig. Well, this is now extra a symbol of something we don't do. You know, no, no pig here. Yeah. Of course, we can't speak for everyone. For all we know, that's the thing, too, when people get very nostalgic about old-timey Judaism. I'm like, for all I know, someone in the shuttle did buy a bacon and did secretly eat it, whatever, and was like, haha, I'm doing a little private blasphemy. So, yeah, you know, think don't there's, think there's sin is a been. new thing. Right. There's always been. Even Aaron was uh, making golden calves. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Something he doesn't get too much into. So, and the other thing I found really interesting in this passage as well was, um, you know, you talked a little bit about the laws of purity. And what's interesting for me, because as you know, that guy, I uh, use Chabad.org a lot for my research. Mm-hmm. On the Chabad.org website, the summary of this passage, they said, this parsha explains the laws of the mikvah. Mm-hmm. But then I look at the passage and they don't mention the mikvah. So I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I can only imagine, and I think I'm right about this, that this this is how we've come to understand the laws of the mikvah is through this pack, package, through this passage, you know, things about purity. Yeah, right. There is some section at the end about like how purity and impurity are passed on. And I think that's the mikvah is connected to it. Yeah, I think I see some of the commentary when I when I look at mikvah, at least under... They kind of got talk about toiveling in the commentary, mm-hmm. uh, immersing a person, uh, and it talks about what things can't be immersed in the mikvah. Like a lot of the commentary points to this mm-hmm. in terms of mikvah, even though I don't really, I don't think I ever hear about a mikvah in the Tanakh, like specifically, like, oh, here is a, you know, flowing well that you can take a bath in. So I just thought it was interesting how hmm. we've come to look at this passage. Yeah, I guess that's true. We don't see people using 
going and entering bodies of water as a way of purifying, right? Like we will have the the main purification ritual that Leviticus is going to bring up is the red heifer, mm-hmm. where there is like water that's mixed up in it, but it's like sprinkling water on people, which is different than immersing in water. Yeah, someone told me this, a PhD in Juda- Judaic studies, although I didn't see this on the Wikipedia page when I checked today, which of course, again, the mm-hmm. level of, was that uh, the mikvah actually might've been influenced from Greek civilization that Jews adopted, which is why you don't hear about it in the Tanakh. And then kind of later it became just integral. Of course, I don't have, there's, I don't have any basis for that, but that's something I remember her saying on a retreat we went to. Huh. That seems possible. Mm-hmm. But I find the mikvah very moving and powerful ritual. Absolutely. I wish I had more mikvah. Do you go to the mikvah every once a year or? It's like a hundred bucks, right? It's like something consequential. Uh, I don't go to a mikvah where they charge you to enter, which is to say, I don't go to an organized mikvah. Okay. But I have gone to the lake near Jenny's cottage mm. as a mikvah. And I also think about it when I go to Lake Ontario. It could be any body of water that has a certain ratio of uh, natural flowing water. And even these days, when I take a bath, even though it's not an official mikvah, sometimes I think to myself, oh, can I consider this a mikvah? And I do things like try to take a bath before Shabbat. And it feels like there is, it just feels very, uh, you know, like physical and visceral. And it feels like being reborn. It's really interesting. Like I, I also shower before Shabbat. It just feels like, because you also, you dress up. So I'm like, oh, of course I would shower before Shabbat. Like, um, but I recently, I don't remember, remember I mentioned this in another episode, but I, I had gotten into, um, cold water plunge therapy you know oh, yeah. uh uh-huh. by my yoga studio they have they call it, yeah cold plunge where you you sit in like five degrees water for a minute mm-hmm. um and i'm not totally yeah i'm totally okay with things being psychosomatic like because there's no proof that cold plunges are good for you but they claim it kind of resets your muscles and resets your body mm-hmm. um and i do feel that kind of slight buzz kind of that mikvah buzz um that one would get, you know, I, it's true. I, I'm probably the same in the summer in the Georgian Bay. I, I've treated that as a mikvah. It's like an early morning in a spiritual way, you know, and I, yeah. I actually do do it in a very kosher way. Like you jump up slightly and you make sure your head is submerged. That's, that's the extra kosher way, right? Kosher yeah, meaning. Right correct. Uh-huh. Uh, nice. We yeah. Using that word and we should explain it. Uh, right. Yeah. You jump off to make sure that there's water surrounding even the bottom of your feet. That you're immersed in water. And I have a friend whose observant family has a property around there. I remember them saying once how uh, the locals would find it funny that to them, they see them, locals perceive them dunking their dishes in the lake, but not to wash them. They just dunk them and take them out. So we know that this is toiling dishes, meaning, yeah, why do we toivel dishes? I know why we, I know why you toivel it the first time. The first time you toivel, toivel meaning dishes, like you submerge them. Mm-hmm. So I guess make them also ritually fit to use. But why yeah. would you toivel them after the initial purchase? Uh, yeah, so it's, it's some other piece around probably something in this realm of purity. It's not 
koshering, right? It's not making it kosher, mm -hmm. but it's something that's still necessary to do according to the tradition to make it like appropriate for use for Jewish people. Okay, yeah. So you only have to do the first time. You don't have yeah, to do it after that. Just, okay, yeah, I thought they did it regularly, but it must have just been when they get... Maybe they're regularly getting new Regularly getting new dish. It's yeah. true. If you're clumsy like me, like you do have to get new dishes. Like me, my cousin visited Toronto yesterday and he doesn't keep any wine glasses in his house. I was like, oh, me neither. That must be a genetic <laughs> thing that we just can't keep wine glasses without breaking them. Breaking it. You know? yeah. He's like, why don't you keep little glasses? I And I was like, I... I used to. But then I broke them all. <laughs> broke them all. There's no more little glasses. There's no more wine glasses. We just drink out of, I think we have some sort of like Judaica earthenware stone goblet somewhere. Mm. So like that's what we drink out on Shabbat anyways. Nice. I, I, I really like stone ceramic. Stone is not ceramic, but I like ceramic uh, wine glasses. Yeah. But it's it's interesting that, you know, kind of these conversations about Ritual and purity. I guess the thing, reason why I find it interesting too, because, you know, obviously you and I are quote unquote preaching to the choir. You know, we're talking about Jewish things and we find Jewish things interesting. Mm -hmm. But I find it interesting that a lot of people are like, oh, you know, all religions have this weird concept of purity and isn't that stupid? But I'm like, I do feel like there are modern forms of purity. Like an example, like if you drop a fork on a clean floor, you need to get a new fork. Like this is sort of a ritual purity mm. when it comes to kind of dishes, like not on like toiveling, you know, and then uh -huh. kind of when it comes to forbidden animals, obviously we don't eat dogs and cats. So mm. like we do have, I'd, so like when people read this, this, they're like, Oh, they have these weird rules for purity and these weird things they choose to eat and not eat. Like we do that now in the secular modern worlds. <laughs> like we, we have, it's impossible for culture and taboo not to arise in every culture. So I've always found that kind of interesting too. Yeah. I do feel like there's, there's something strange about how we relate to germs, which it probably is based in some, some wisdom and then like gets carried off into other places culturally. I'm especially interested about like the spiritual, like there is like spiritual language about this, which is not uh, for me, that feels like part of the piece that's hard for, people to like relate to or understand because we don't talk about like spiritual connection in the same way mm -hmm. it's like oh we understand oh germs okay health we understand health but is this making you healthy or not healthy is like kosher healthy or not healthy so people like feel like they need to describe jewish eating customs in that way but it's yeah. not about that ultimately it's about like connecting to god and the divine in a certain way and like we have this great book of tips that our ancestors have come up with I agree with you that when I was kosher, kosher, like kosher in the traditional way, every meal did feel very elevated because it like it really took a lot of thought mm -hmm. to get it here. So it does kind of bring thought into the whole process. Yeah. And I think we need to like we could be that we need to think about things differently, like the category of kashrut that feels more engaging to me these days is eco kashrut, mm -hmm. right? putting thought into what we're eating, but in a more holistic, like what is the ecological impact and the source of this food. And I know for myself that when I engage in that, like in that thinking and care, it does feel elevated and I do feel more connected to my food mm -hmm. in a way that feels spiritually resonant. And I do feel like that is like Leviticus is trying to help us get like when we started Leviticus, we were talking about the center 
and it being like the fifth book, uh, the third of five books in the in the middle of the Torah. There is something like really special that it's trying to. In- it's right. It feels like there are secrets here of how to connect to God, and like we're removed from it, and it's hard to see. But I have a lot of faith in it, and like we need to. There's something I think that we still need to rediscover. Maybe if I could sh- share like one small thing. On share this, a small thing. I have point. a I have a thing too after your thing. Yeah. Uh, I was reading when I talking about secrets. I was reading. The, I like to read the Zohar sometimes when I'm in shul. I pull it off the shelf. And it hasn't driven you mad? <laughs> Not yet. Oh yeah. Or maybe it has. <laughs> it's full of great things. I I recommend it. Yeah. Um. And it's talking. I was. I think I was reading it for last week's parsha for Tzav. And it like had this like little phrase that uh, the Zohar likes to talk about, like the right side and the left side and finding it's like a certain way of talking about the middle path that you need to like bring together different divine energies, like chesed and gvura to get to tiferet. Heroism and joy to get into (laughs) splendor. Yeah. So they like the Zohar uses these, specific words for these energies that you're like translating correctly but they kind of have other valences they're like these layered images called the spherot these spheres of influence Mm -hmm. really means like basically kindness and open-heartedness and like stringency and uh boundary we need both of those Mm -hmm. influences in our lives and they if you can bring them together there's like a certain kind of beauty that comes from being open-hearted and boundary in appropriate ways. Uh, I like that. I think I want to live my life open-hearted with boundaries. Yeah. I think I have been the older I get, but you know, right. The Zohar wants you to as well. And then they like be like, and they have this world and like, Oh, well, where do we see this in the sacrifices? And then they say for the Ola, for right, the offering that we were talking about, that's fully consumed on the, on the altar. It says, oh, well, where do we see the right side, chesed? And they find it in like the, they say, they talk about like the hidden and the secrets of the person coming. So like what, the person who's coming to bring the, the offering, like what's deep in their heart and how that interacts with the priest's, it uses the word desire. That's a, a word the Zohar likes, what the priest wants. So it's some like the coming together of, the person offering and the spiritual guide like that's what allows for something for like open-hearted kindness to come mm-hmm. and for me that feels right in my own spiritual path when i can like connect with a mentor or guide to really like help me get in touch with what's important yeah that's one piece and the zohar is like and the other piece you need and the zohar is like imagining what's going on oh there's also the levites you know the, the livim mm-hmm. and the zohar says that oh, the levites were always singing that's their their job is to like come every day sing and they're like oh there's some like regular thing that's happening and like and i think that we sometimes even feel it even in shul or like once we get to know songs there's like regularity there's mm-hmm. a certain set liturgy but then it like becomes comfortable in a certain way and holds holds us and that's like more the boundary piece of it and they say then that, then that can come together to like a real tefillah a real prayer and because they're already 
trying to do this uh, interpretation of the Korban, not the sacrifices, are a way of doing tefillah, somehow connecting to the divine. So interesting. And I wonder what that song sounded like with the Levites. I hope it didn't sound like trope, like the <laughs> cantillation of the Torah. So it was like, it's supposed to be entertaining. <laughs> I've always wondered that. Wonder. Like my piece about kind of the mindfulness about food was just that I remember mm-hmm. one time, I feel like I talk about my husband a lot on this podcast, but that's just the kind of person I am. I um, we're making dinner or James was making dinner and I heard him like whispering something and I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm in the practice now. I, I thank the meat every time I cook with it for giving its life for me. Oh. It's like, Oh, that's so sweet. Like that's, very much to me the the feeling of a bracha yeah um and kind of bringing awareness to the food we're eating so i know it's probably abstract for you because you don't eat meat but you know um no no, i'm kidding of course you you used to eat meat you know so but it's kind of fish which also have souls it's true yeah fish have the biggest souls no i'm kidding don't quote me on that Um, Um, so I feel like we've kind of brought in a lot of really interesting threads here that while these Leviticus passages and Parshiot are kind of can seem obtuse that in this passage, we found out a lot about things that are pure or kosher or ritually fit. We learned from the mikvah to kind of kosher animals and kind of what feels purifying in our own lives. Mm. So I feel like this is kind of a really, I mean, this is a really, really good, good Torah portion. But I feel like even with a good one, we pulled out some good things. I think so. This has been fun. This has been fun. So as always, again, I'm kind of wrapping up with me being Paul Saleka and... And I'm Aaron Rotenberg. Have a great week, friends. 